When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. The neighborhood where I live has several small community parks. Some are just walking trails. Others have playgrounds, and a few have pools where the school swim and dive teams meet to practice. One of the pools is really nice with lap lanes, different types of diving boards, including a high dive, a shallow end with a beach entry, and even a separate splash pond kiddie pool with a water playground and fountains. They also have a fitness center, which is a large, well-outfitted workout room with a good deal of equipment and machines. I'm not much on workouts, but was interested in getting a membership just for the pool privileges. So before COVID, I looked into membership rates. Anyone can join, but I qualify for a significant discount for living in the immediate neighborhood. I decided to do it, but when I went to sign up, the woman at the desk told me she couldn't say more, but that I should maybe wait a little before I joined. I didn't know what that meant. I asked her if they were going to close the facility, and she said no, but that she couldn't say more. She appeared to be giving me a nod and a wink, so I took her advice, and in about a month or so, I received an announcement in the community newsletter that they were combining the fitness center membership with the pool membership, and that the lower-cost pool membership now included the fitness center as well. So thank you, woman at the desk, that was a handy tip. Now, for $20 a year, I get access to all the park facilities and amenities, including the awesome pool, which is outdoor, heated, and salt water. I also get full access to the fitness center, which includes a universal machine, several machines I don't know what they're for or what they do, rowing machines, exercise bikes, treadmills, free weights, fit balls, jump ropes, elliptical machines, I mean, you name it, it's there. The downside is that it's only open five days a week and has odd, irregular hours based on lifeguard availability. But we're talking $20 a year, not $20 a month, $20 a year. That's a ridiculous bargain. Since COVID, my company accelerated their plan to review work-from-home standards, and after seeing the metrics from the shift, they've decided I may now permanently work from home. This is not ideal for everyone, but for me, it absolutely is. This means I can negotiate my own hours as long as I get my work done and am reasonably available to my teams for meetings and support. Afternoon hours during the week for the fitness center start at 4.45 p.m. and they go through early evening, so I just knock off work a little early before 5 and head over to the pool. I do weights for bone density and to maintain muscle mass. I do the recumbent bike for aerobic. I have a hereditary potential for osteoarthritis, so the bike is a good fit for not putting too much stress on my knees. To cool down, I do some laps in the pool, which is also easy on my joints. And then I go home. On weekends, they have different hours but I can work with those as well since my day job runs on a standard work week. I know this sounds pretty posh, but the truth is, my home isn't all that. 
It was built in the 1970s, and just prior to my purchase, they had to level and reinforce the foundation for sale. It's an older, incredibly average house in an incredibly average neighborhood, not unlike the one I grew up in in Orlando. When you Google for median home prices, at least as of the middle of last year, my house price estimate was in the lower half. And when I look at the average home sale price, I'm also in the lower half. The fact remains, however, that I'm a single white woman who's capable of maintaining this financially on her own, at least for now. As home prices rise and taxes increase, it may not be sustainable. I've already had one friend move to a neighboring city who stated outright the reason was cost of living in Austin. His home was newer and larger, but he had lost his partner a few years ago, and when he looked at downsizing, Austin just was not feasible. For me, then, in the circles I run in, this is a normal existence. There may be different perks. Some may have double incomes. But ultimately, since we tend to gravitate toward people we live with and work with, most of the folks I know are living a similar existence to mine. So this is what I think of as average. But it raises the question, for whom is this average? The average life of which demographic? And this cannot be separated from identity. There are people who want to say that identity politics is pure evil, but like any tool, it is what you make it. I'm not talking about quotas or simple proportionality. I'm talking about the people around you who are most often like you, who share your concerns, your struggles, your successes, and who see and understand the experience of their existence in much the same way you do. Bigots will use identity politics to protect their privilege. They claim they aren't using identity politics because they want to sell their reality as being built on merit and perks that they have earned. But in the end, they're pretending that identity played no part and that we all experience existence in the same way. Some of us are just better humans than others and capable of greater things. Those who don't achieve as much suffer from some sort of vice or character flaw that is their own personal problem and nothing to do with how society serves or whom it serves. But in the hands of those without privilege, identity can be a powerful unifying force, and one that can build a movement based on shared experience of oppression and understanding of how a system functions to deny opportunities and support for some while providing it to others. Growing up in a world surrounded by people who shared very similar demographics because of where we lived and went to school and shopped and worked, my community peers, I internalized certain expectations about my life, not just how I lived, but how I should live. I was taught, without anyone ever saying it out loud, that there was a certain level of lifestyle that I could reasonably expect to have if I were able to achieve all of the things that my peers were achieving. I was entitled to have enough food. I was entitled to shelter in a home that was structurally sound with central heat and air. We even installed a swimming pool when I was 12, which in Orlando is not uncommon. In fact, to this day, I feel like my house is missing something because it lacks a pool. But I realize that in Austin, that's really just not as big a thing. Sort of like how people in Florida see photos of my home now and comment that it has a fireplace. It isn't that nobody in Florida has a fireplace, just like it's not true that no one in Austin has a pool, but it's just more or less common depending on where you live. It wasn't that nobody ever told me there were some folks who had less privilege or more privilege. I was aware of classism, but we didn't call it that growing up. Mainly, I was taught that we're all equal in the U.S. under the law and under our system, that the same opportunities were afforded to all of us, that a person could be born in a one-room log cabin and grow up to be president, 
the land of opportunity, the big melting pot, the American dream. What I wasn't taught was that if you're born with an attachment to certain identities, those opportunities and dreams are in much closer proximity and much easier reach. It isn't that someone can't rise out of poverty and end up in the U.S. Senate. It's that it's far more unlikely to happen to you than to someone born with connections to the right country clubs, a legacy into the right colleges, someone with more money and lifestyle that teaches them that the U.S. Senate is what they are entitled to, not just what it's possible to achieve if they buck all the odds and play a perfect game. As we saw with Trump, you don't have to be smarter or more competent or capable to end the game dripping in privilege. You just have to be able to avoid losing all that privilege you were born into. You can do the bare minimum and still hire enough lawyers to keep you out of any real trouble. You can still find banks willing to work with you. You can still end up inexplicably with a degree from a respected institute of higher learning. You can still travel the world, date supermodels, and dine with heads of state while you exist as someone who demonstrates a lack of education, gross ignorance of basic realities, a vulgar and disagreeable disposition, one might even reasonably argue, outright criminal disposition. Now imagine Trump born black in a U.S. ghetto, not really learning in school, demonstrating shocking ignorance of basic realities, behaving in a vulgar, confrontational, disagreeable way with people, and engaging in criminality. Not only do we know that this person would not end up in Trump's position, but we can pretty safely say they'll end up in prison without a future. This child born without privilege has to do academically marvelous, even though they're going to subpar underfunded schools. They have to be savvy when it comes to the world around them just to survive and avoid violence. They have to be able to get along and negotiate what will be an often dangerous existence. They have to be able to figure out programs and understand the legalese of how to gain access to food and housing, if they're lucky enough to even have food and housing. And they'll have to avoid criminality in situations where crime is often all around them, and where police are aggressively patrolling their neighborhoods, escalating interactions with them, and basically looking for reasons to arrest them because of who they are and where they live. Trump is a demonstration that merit is not about what you look like on paper or even how you end the game. And I'm not even necessarily advocating for a system based on merit because whatever metrics we apply will still leave someone behind. No human being as part of a society should worry about food or housing security. There is no lack of merit that should result in starvation or living under a bridge. Our own prison system, dismal as it is, demonstrates that we recognize that even if you behave in a way that is a social detriment, you still deserve basic food, shelter, and access to health care. And yet where I live, there's a mounting homeless problem, and the response from a lot of people in my neighborhood is simply to ask if the homeless can be moved somewhere where we don't have to see them, even if they're still living under a bridge. Can't they live under a bridge where I don't have to be reminded of it? When people attack identity politics, they're usually someone with privilege saying that it's wrong for those without it to band together for support because they might actually make gains to improve their situation, which would necessarily cut into the oppressing group's privilege access. They will suggest that things like quotas are a bad idea, and I would tend to agree that quotas in the hands of someone like them would be a really bad idea because they see identity as being skin deep. They see the identity black as just that, 
To them, one black person is as good as any other to plug into a slot if I just have to have a 15% black workforce. And that's a recipe for failure. One woman is not as good as any other when we're talking about a capacity to do a job. One black person is not as good as any other when we're talking about capacity to do a job. And if I'm screening my privileged applicants for requirements, but hiring my minority and protected status applicants based on what they look like, then yes, I'm likely to see that my privileged applicants perform better. But why should a quota not result in capable applicants? Unless I believe that women and black citizens or folks with disabilities simply aren't as good and will be equally as bad and that hiring them is a favor? But there's nothing stopping me from hiring qualified minority or protected status applicants. Nothing. Saying the workforce has to be some percentage of women or non-white does not say I have to hire unqualified applicants. But that's the assumption and the narrative that privileged people make and tell when they crap on identity politics. Identity in the U.S. can hand you the moon and stars or leave you bleeding in the streets. But it can also drop you anywhere in between. And that's been my life. The privilege of existing somewhere in between. And this may have caused me to believe that my life represents some aspect of normal or average as though it was the standard for existence. It never occurred to me that people in other modes of existence were getting the same message, told we can all have the moon and stars, but actually trained that we were really only entitled to whatever we were born into. It really is a form of indoctrination that a lot of us need to learn to recognize and see past. It reminds me of that episode I did on introjected beliefs, how a person can internalize external messages without even realizing they're internalizing them. It's actually possible for an abuser to get the victim to abuse themselves, even after the abuser's gone or when they aren't there. Tell someone they're worthless enough times, and after a while they start to tell themselves. And just like church indoctrination, it may not take for everyone, but you really only need it to take for enough people to keep your system operating. When I look back at my life and my privilege and I ask, how did I get here? I can see so many things that played into it that are absolutely not universals. Things that I can't take credit for, that I know not every child or young person had access to. My father started life in the Midwest. He was born into a dying railroad town. His father was an alcoholic who worked on the railroad. He used to tell stories about his mother leaving him and his brothers at home alone so she could go look for their dad on paydays before he blew his whole check in the bars. She beat them with a hickory switch. He started smoking cigarettes when he was 10 years old and had his own rifle probably about the same age. He never finished high school, and he joined the military when he was still a minor. This single move was probably the most pivotal decision that resulted in getting him out of that town and into more opportunities. So let's look at that. What if he'd had a disability that barred him from service? An abused kid with an absent alcoholic father who struggles in school in a dying railroad town. What were his alternative options? What would his future really look like? Then we have the question of whether military service, as the single most viable option out of poverty, is even ethical. I actually am not opposed to civil service options that provide opportunity, paid college, health care coverage, long-term pension and benefits. I just think we should be promoting a wider range of options than one that puts a gun in your hand. He met my mother while he was traveling in the military. She was also living in poverty. She grew up in a house with 12 siblings. There would have been 13, but one died during infancy. 
Her own story is more shrouded. Her stories about her upbringing conflict with those of some of her siblings. However, a family of 13 or 14 will cover a lot of time, and it's possible for family dynamics to change as parents change or as the family increases. She was on the tail end of the line, and some of her older siblings, according to my cousins, claim their father was abusive, including toward their mother. I had one uncle who was institutionalized due to disability. I had an aunt who was homeschooled because she had some form of learning disability. I had another aunt who was disabled due to polio, and another uncle who was blind since childhood. The girls all slept in one room, the boys in another. I guess they were fortunate that there was a pretty even split. My mother recalls her father growing grapes and making his own wine. I know he had a military past. For her part, my mother did graduate high school, but married my father after they discovered she was pregnant, and she traveled with him as a military wife as the family grew. They lived in Tokyo and Germany, and all over the U.S. before his retirement from the military, when they moved to Orlando, where my father worked manual labor with one of my uncles to help build Disney World. In his later years, he did mechanic work, something he'd learned in the military. When his back started to give him problems, he had to stop working and change careers. He went into real estate. Despite a military pension, we were on food stamps, basically what is now SNAP, until he finished real estate school and started making money as an agent. He went on to get his broker's license later in his career. Both our parents believed in hitting as punishment, which is another reason I'm suspect of my mother's childhood narrative that she doesn't recall ever being hit by her parents. I find it odd that a child raised without hitting would grow up and develop hitting as a preferred method of punishment. I don't want to get too much into the lives of living members of my family for privacy reasons. My mother and father are both dead, so I don't feel any discomfort talking about them. But suffice to say that one of my siblings was not college-bound, and the other dropped out of college to pursue another path. I was the final hope, and my father pretty well told me I was going to college. He lived vicariously through his children, and he wanted at least one of us to land a degree. My mother, on the other hand, felt that I should meet someone, get married, have kids, and settle down. She openly denigrated the idea of me going to college, despite the fact that she was proud of having finished high school, and both she and my father expected above-average grades from me all through primary and secondary school. So as far as upbringing, it was a mixed bag. But the go-to-college expectation was absolutely something to put in the privilege bin. I did go to college. I was allowed to live at home while doing so, because I went to a local institution. I also worked part-time in my field of study to help offset costs. My parents allowed me to live at home for free in exchange for staying in school and making passing grades. So financial support at home was also part of my privilege bucket. Not everyone is pushed to go to college, and not everyone can go to college without taking out a mountain of loans. Certainly not everybody has a family they can fall back on to cover their living costs while they're in school. This alone was huge. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Additionally, while it was used and not the greatest car in the world, my parents gifted me a vehicle as well. And I was appreciative to them for all they offered. But I didn't appreciate the level of social scale of unearned opportunity I was being handed. We lived in what I'd call a lower middle class neighborhood. But the schools I attended before going to college were good schools. The teachers were dedicated. 
They gave me individual attention, and I thrived. My middle school was a bit of a mixed bag, however. I remember going to a magnet high school that pulled from several area middle schools. I saw someone one day from my middle school and asked them if they ever talked about our middle school to others in the high school. They said, sometimes. I asked if people believed them when they told stories about it, and they said, usually not. I didn't realize until high school that my middle school experience was so uniquely negative. Academically, it was fine. But the school social aspect was a bit like Lord of the Flies. Girls there were routinely sexually assaulted, including me. It was such a common occurrence that I really didn't even acknowledge it was an assault until adulthood. We didn't call it that. We called it being grabbed in the hallway, or even during class. Being groped was a nearly daily thing. Beyond that, I had to walk past an area where kids who smoked and did drugs hung out every morning before school. It was a dirt path that ran along the edge of some woods. It was adjacent to the school, but not on school property. I remember feeling intimidated by them. But later, I actually became friends with many of them, and I got to see a lot of classism there as well. I was pretty well known as their smart friend. And even though I was often in groups where drugs were being passed around, I was never pressured to participate. In fact, I remember many occasions where someone would pass me a joint and someone else would say, oh, she doesn't party. They'd just skip me and continue passing it around. I won't say I remain drug-free, but they were never a huge part of my life. And I am in support of legalization and regulation and increased support for folks who do encounter problems with drugs in their own lives. During this time before high school, though, I knew exactly one black child attending my elementary or middle school. She was an acquaintance of mine. She was living with her single mother, not far from where I lived. I remember meeting her mother and realizing her mother was very demanding of her daughter. She expected her to perform well and achieve. I remember she went to the same high school later as well. She talked about difficulty fitting in with the black population there, which was still fairly small. She said most of the white kids she'd met at the new school didn't accept her because she was black, and the black students told her she was too white. Her experience was very different than my own, pretty clearly. Additionally, though, at our middle school, other forms of violence were also prevalent. Fights on school property were not uncommon, and weapons were also not uncommon. I guess I was fortunate to go to school where knives were the weapon of choice rather than guns, but fistfights and knife fights were something we saw every few weeks. I had several friends in middle school who did illegal drugs. I had one friend who was often in fights. I had one friend who dropped out due to a pregnancy. My middle school spanned 6th to 8th grade. For folks outside the U.S., that's about ages 11 to 13. But I managed to get through school and into college. I felt academically supported. I ended up with a degree in liberal studies with areas of specialization including communication journalism, anthropology, and studio art. I turned down a great opportunity to intern at a reputable newspaper because I wasn't sure I wanted to pursue journalism as a career, and I was told that I had one of the strongest undergraduate portfolios in the undergraduate program by one of the professors doing the final review in the fine arts program. He exercised his option to take several pieces of my work for future teaching purposes, but I had no motivation to become an artist and eventually instead went into design, a field I worked in for many satisfying years that included mentoring a number of junior designers. Academically, although I performed well, I can't deny that without my underlying privileges, I may not have had the drive to perform or even the opportunity. Had my circumstances been different, I may not have finished high school. Had I had to deal with housing or food insecurity or grow up in a community traumatized by violence, had I been born with a learning disability or even another form of disability to contend with, it might have all been too much. If the road before me had not been paved, 
and those wheels greased, would I, on my own, have had the initiative to overcome obstacles to make all of this happen? I honestly don't think so. I'm not a very ambitious or driven person. I never have been. And I suspect I may have ADHD, although I've never been diagnosed. A friend suggested it, and I did some further reading and discovered at least that many things about the world that I experience are not considered to be common. Whether that's ADHD or just some tendencies in that direction, I can't say, but a lot of my life could fairly be framed as hyperfocus followed by an entire lack of interest. That's why I ended up with a liberal studies degree. I would shift focus, dive in very dedicated, learn about it, do well, and then walk away into some new obsession. When I did graduate, I had far more credits than needed to do so. In fact, I could have added an area of specialization for Western literature, but the university only included three areas as valid. If I did have ADHD, then it's fortunate for me that liberal studies was offered. It's also fortunate that it didn't disrupt my pre-college academic capacity. Many people who have issues like these struggle in school. My best friend, for example, during school struggled with dyslexia. Neither of us knew it at the time, and she wasn't diagnosed until adulthood, but it very much impacted her school experience. I eventually left off working in design and became a project manager. And that college degree has come in handy even when it had zero relation to my job. I have applied to any number of jobs where experience was waived for a college degree. So, three years of experience or a four-year college degree. This is a form of gatekeeping. Basically, having that degree would put me in a position where I have no experience, but I could end up managing people who have actual experience in the work. We reward academic achievement as some sort of signal of capacity over and above people who have real-world experience that demonstrates they can do the work. How does my degree even matter if it's not related to the work that's being done? I have seen job descriptions that indicate specific degree studies or certifications, and that I understand. But when I see four-year degree, without any hint of ensuring that degree is appropriately associated with the area of employment, I'm looking at pure privilege. And that's where I am now. I landed a job that gave me credit for an indiscriminate degree. I did sell what I thought was related experience, but I had not done the type of work I was being asked to do before. And through that privileged degree, I landed a job that threw even more privilege at me a hefty pay increase, great benefits at a large company, a safe work environment, a space where hostility is not tolerated and diversity is valued. I own a car that's more than 10 years old, but it's still in good working order and it was paid for in full with no payments. I got it when I was still married and had access to a double income. I still owe on my house, but I'm a homeowner, not a renter. No car payments or even having a car is privilege. Owning and having access to home equity is privilege. I have these things because I had access to marry someone who was in my peer group, and we did okay. Even after losing that second income, I still do okay. We did have to deal with cancer when I was working in a smaller company. The company lost its insurance because of the rules around insurance before the Affordable Care Act. But I was able to keep things afloat, shift us to a health insurance risk pool, and ultimately that's why I moved to a new job with a larger company, the need to access affordable health care coverage. So while handling cancer was certainly not privilege and came with its challenges, the opportunities we had to help us get through it, even while it may have felt like a struggle, were privilege opportunities that not everyone has. When the cancer treatment failed, we had to go into a research trial. 
I found a group of volunteer pilots known as Angel Flights who were willing to help us get my then-husband to treatments in Virginia. But we had to be closer to the destination. He was able to move in with a relative living in Florida at the time to qualify. Again, pure luck, not effort, not earned. Yes, I had to make decisions and put in some effort and resource. My point is not that I have done nothing at all and someone came and handed me a house and a car and a job. But it's important to keep in mind that I not only had an easier time accessing these things, but that in some cases people face near insurmountable or outright insurmountable barriers to access these same opportunities. People who might have really excelled where I did okay, maybe dead or homeless or in prison or struggling elsewhere in some other way because they were literally never presented with my choices, my advantages, my opportunities. There are analogies online of people running a foot race where one has to start several yards back, or they carry an extra weight, or whatever the disadvantage may be. But it's undeniable that we don't all start on equal footing, and it's ridiculous to judge outcomes when the race we're asked to run is inherently unfairly leveraged. And it really does not matter that we can find an example here or there of someone overcoming odds. The point is that they had to overcome odds that I did not. And I had to overcome odds someone else did not. And that's the very definition of privilege. And it means that I really didn't earn everything I have. That someone else is told they have to work harder to get what I have. Or that they have to work harder to even get less than what I have. And my advantages come with a cost. This is the part that so many people miss or don't want to hear because it's not comfortable. We don't want to hear that our advantages come at a cost to someone else. I can't go to a better-rated school unless there are less better-rated schools. I can't live in a desirable neighborhood unless there are undesirable neighborhoods. The way our system is set up allows me to work at a company where I have access to health care. But that means, based on how the system is set up, some people who can't get the cherry jobs don't have that access to health care. I'm handed nice things in a system that is set up so that those who aren't able to reach my metrics are denied them. This system caters to me, and I take advantage of it. I use it. I exploit it to get what I have, and I'm in there operating within it, supporting it, and maintaining a situation where others suffer and pay a cost because that's our system. I remember not long ago feeling tired all the time. I couldn't function. I was having trouble staying awake at work. I was unable to finish my daily walks anymore. Having an issue with my thyroid in the past, I understood how metabolism can impact things like this. I went to my annual visit with my endocrinologist and I told them I knew it wasn't my iron because I take a supplement for that since I'm a blood donor and I've already identified a problem metabolizing iron. I know from the regular tests that I'm not anemic. They tested me for vitamin D and said it was extremely low. They got me on prescription D and later got me off that and onto an over-the-counter supplement. Now I'm working out five times a week and feeling much better. I still experience bouts of drowsiness, but nothing comparable to what I was doing before. What if I couldn't afford to go to the doctor? I only have an endocrinologist because I was able to go in for a medical check to see about some concerning symptoms. And now I'm on thyroid medication. I'm managing all of this because of privilege. If I'd not been able to check out the original symptoms, I'd have been dead within 10 years of my condition. If I was not currently able to afford my prescription, I'd be dead within a month. If I weren't able to check with my endocrinologist on this new issue, 
I'd be unable to continue working, all because of a vitamin deficiency that was easy to correct once it was diagnosed. I currently have a friend who's on an ACA plan with a high deductible. He had a high PSA count last time he went in for an annual checkup. That was a while ago, and he hasn't gone in for a biopsy or a test for prostate cancer partly out of concerns about cost. He was self-employed and lost his insurance after a divorce from his partner, who provided their insurance coverage from her work. I was able to fix a vitamin deficiency. He has to make financial decisions in the face of requiring further testing for what could be advancing and expensive cancer. This is privilege. The way the system is set up does not just advantage me. It does so at the expense of others. I'm not even a highly empathetic person. I'm not extremely compassionate or caring, but the absolute baseline for a human being should be to not want to support a system that is set up to benefit me at the expense of others or to benefit others at my own expense. From the supplements I can afford, to the diagnoses I can afford to get, to the resources I can afford to buy, to the opportunities that I'm able to access, the computer that I'm recording on, the internet I have in my home, the weekend I get off work, the comfortable home I have to work in, the lunch I just ate consisting of kale and hummus wraps, the games that I was playing this morning on my cell phone, the bills I received yesterday that I was able to pay using my checking account at a bank online. These aren't just conveniences. They are conveniences I have access to that others are denied because of the way this system is constructed to offer nice things to some and deny them to others, resulting in more for me. People who don't have what I have can't compete for the things I can. They can't compete to buy a home, to get a doctor, to afford transportation, to look as good on a job application or resume. They lose opportunities because our system favors me to the point of excluding them, and I gain opportunities every time they aren't allowed to compete. I recently saw a new item advertised for sale. It was, if I recall correctly, a watch that will provide GPS data in case you're lost and need to be located. The idea was that you should buy this for your family members in order to keep them safe. The idea of a dystopian government abusing such a thing notwithstanding, if there was a way to keep people safer by having a device worn on their arms, why wouldn't we give this technology to every citizen by default? Why should only wealthy people be afforded safety? Speaking of dystopian futures, isn't that the stuff of sci-fi nightmares? A future where the wealthy have resources and everyone else is denied? Is it really the stuff of science fiction? Or am I living it right now? Do we need to invent a city in the clouds to demonstrate something I can point out by just driving a few minutes to the underpass where people are living under a bridge less than a few miles from my comfortable home? We treat this like fiction, and we act like it has to be imagined to be understood, like it's a cautionary tale about our future. We treat it like, what if? But as a society, we seem to be incapable of acknowledging it's the here and now. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.